You're listening to the Public Safety Drone Flight Podcast, your source of real-world, actionable aviation information for fire departments, police departments, and law enforcement agencies. This is the critical information you need to be an exceptional pilot and help save lives with flight. And now, your host, Public Safety Flight Chief Pilot, Steve Rode. Hi, this is Steve Rode, your friendly chief pilot here at the Public Safety Flight website. Be sure to visit psflight.org to get in on my private email list, read all the latest posts, or ask me all of your public safety drone questions. That's psflight.org, or if that trips you up, you can land in the right place by using publicsafetyflight.org. FDNY Lieutenant Fred Carlson started as a fireman on Queen's Ladder 151 in November of 2006 and has risen through the ranks since then. He is promoted to lieutenant at the end of 2019, and he now serves in leadership with the FDNY Command Tactical Unit, otherwise known as the Drone Program. Fred comes from a family of aviation. His mother and brother both hold Part 61 pilot certificates, and his dad, uncle, and cousin served in the Air Force. So he has a love of aviation. Fred and his pilots fly in some of the busiest airspace in the United States, and have found a way to make things work. The unit Fred is with manages all sorts of robotics now, from underwater to ground-based and now airborne. I got a lot of questions for you, but at first, I just want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Steve. I'm happy to be here. Before we dive in, looking back on your experience with drones and public safety, what is one thing you think most new pilots don't know that they should? Wow. One thing that everybody should know, uh, you're there to serve. You know, I know we have chiefs that want us to get us, you know, visuals on things that are there, but your job is to serve your department and your public. And if you're not flying safely, you're not serving anyone. Safety is number one. I hate to uh, quote Mike O'Shea, but slide number one is safety first. And that really is the utmost importance to our program. And that's interesting because in public safety, one of the things I've run into being a pilot first, as I tell people, I am the best firefighter in the air and the least competent on the ground. <laughs> but I, I have observed a lot of people just get so mission focused that they don't think about airborne safety at all. And that's, uh, that's new for people who are just getting into it. And speaking of that, what words of wisdom do you have for any fire department that has been to a conference or had a salesperson visit and has the impression that all they have to do is buy a drone and start flying every call? Uh, That sounds great, and it doesn't work that way. Uh, I was fortunate enough that when I got into the program, Command Tactical, uh, we had a civilian, Tim Herlocker, who had gone through the legwork along with several other people to get us our COA. And we were originally uh, able to fly under our COA with the agreement that we were using a tethered system that only went to 200 feet. Now, 200 feet is not that much, especially in New York City, but it was better than nothing. So we were able to expand upon that. But if you don't have your ducks in a row, you're you're going to... you're your program's going to be short-lived. I can't remember which department it was, but somebody was doing just that. They had, I think they had an Inspire somewhere out West and they were flying it around. And finally the FAA said, 
what are you doing over there? And that was the end of their program until they could get their ducks in a row. So the, the back end, which is where I'm now residing as a lieutenant, is administrative. There is a lot of compliance, a lot of safety, a lot of things that need to be thought of and you know worked out before you can push your fingers on those sticks and get that drone in the sky. Let's talk about the tether system for a second. I have had experience with one of the issues with the tether system is you don't always get to put it where you need it to be, right? What was uh, so, your experience? <laughs> so the New York City Fire Department, uh, we decided, or actually it wasn't we, I was not part of this decision, but uh, the drone unit was to respond on all second alarms or greater. So a single alarm, you're looking at you know four engines, three ladder trucks, two chiefs, and a division chief. You go to a second alarm, double that. And we're responding out of downtown Brooklyn. Now, anybody that's ever driven in New York City knows that you can't get anywhere fast out of downtown Brooklyn. So if we got a fire that was out in an outer borough like Queens or up in the North Bronx, we're getting there way late in the game. And the tethered system was unfortunately tied to ground power or we had to lug around a generator to get it to work. So usually we use the inverter off of the truck that we had. And we were only as good as close as we could get. So getting there that late with that many apparatus, if we were maybe four or five blocks out or off to either side, maybe on the backside on exposure three, we were lucky enough to get a view with our 200 foot limitation. So the tethered system was was difficult to get it where we wanted it to go, judging by the size of it and the need for ground power. So what do you think makes someone a good public safety drone pilot? Uh, I think it comes down to aeronautical decision-making and having a true understanding of what it is that you're supplying. You know, if you have a chief that doesn't e I've had chiefs that look at me and go, get that thing out of my area. They just don't understand what things we can bring to the table. And as time has gone on, we've gained more respect with the, the staff chiefs in our fire department. But uh, to be able to, to be able to bring something to them, that they can finally use and understand has been a, a wonderful thing for our program. It's almost like you're reading my notes because <laughs> my, my next question for you was, I think that one of the larger stumbling blocks to starting a drone program is not the drone flying, but integrating the technology and capabilities into an already established department operational process. So has that taken you time at FDNY and do you have any words of wisdom for others on how to do this? Uh, absolutely. And it has taken loads of time. And to this day, it still takes part of my time. Uh, the unfortunate thing is if you don't look at the bigger picture, you will pigeonhole yourself, for lack of a better phrase. The visuals that you're receiving on your drone, if you have no way to disseminate that information to who it needs to go to, what good is it? Who are you? You're just a firefighter pushing sticks and looking at a screen. If you can't convey what needs to be seen or what needs to be relayed to those that are making the decisions, you're not helping anyone. You're, you're more of a problem than you are a helper. So for us, it has been very difficult to, you know, a 150-year-old department steeped in tradition who's, you know, using dot matrix printers and, you know, carbon paper a few years ago to get them to embrace streaming or to look at a tablet or to even just give us a try has been a difficult process. But, you know, as time has gone on and the upper part of the department, the leadership is getting some influence from the younger guys, we are getting there. Um, our department has rolled out its own application called the Incident Command app, and we're 
currently trying to integrate our streamed footage into that so that any department member that has a department phone or an iPad, which is every apparatus in New York City, will be able to look at what we're providing as they're responding to these multiple alarms. So if we have an escalating event where people are coming from you know, other boroughs or other parts of the borough they're in, they could look at it as they're responding Hopefully, in the near future, if this works out, it's still in the pilot program. Um, it, it could be, you know, the benefits are immeasurable. Early on, it seemed like one of the sales approaches was all you have to do is put the drone in the air and then put a monitor in front of your incident commander and he can watch what the drone sees. But nobody really seemed to to understand that. The incident commander is drinking out of a fire hose. He's got so many decisions and information coming in. He really doesn't have time to do that. Do you see the drone pilot in the future as more automation uh, becomes incorporated as becoming a technology expert and interpreting the information and providing expertise to the incident commander? Uh, Absolutely. Um, Our guys are the ones that know what they're looking at. And you're absolutely right. That that fire hose at a multiple alarm fire, the, I, the chief is just, he doesn't want to know unless it's a problem. And I can't say I blame him. They've got jobs to do. They have checklists in their heads that nobody else has. They see the big picture. So for us, we're, we're gaining our voice with the department. Um, our guys have been able to see things and say, you might want to look at this. We had a church fire in lower Manhattan and it was getting into the Abbey behind it. And next thing you knew, you know, this fire is getting that much bigger, that much quicker. So the idea of that was our original plan was let's put a big old iPad in front of the command post. Nobody looked at it. You know, the, the communications guys like get this thing out of my way. The chief's like, all right, great. Put it down. We keep going. It, it was it was a hard buy-in at first, but we're definitely finally getting some of the recognition because of our guys being able to interpret what it is that they're seeing. You know, with the uh, the advantages of now having the thermal, you can't you can't beat having isotherms. You know, you have somebody look at it and oh, it's hot over there. I'm like, it's a chimney. It's a hundred degrees. You don't need to be concerned about that. But in that back corner where there shouldn't be any heat, mm-hmm. that's a problem. So you know, it's. It's become a, a good thing, and they're also starting to use it tactically. We had a building not too long ago that the fire was just too far gone. The smoke was banked down. It was not lifting. It was just that stale air day, mm-hmm. and the guys down in the tower ladder buckets are just shooting water up into nowhere. We were able to get the drone up above in the back, and we would go to each pedestal and direct them to say, point your stream a little bit further to the right around 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and they'd start putting water on fire. So it is starting to become tactical decisions. And same thing with brush fires. We had a fire in a junkyard. It's great video. You have it, you see the thermal imaging, and you can see the water just pumping onto this group of cars over there. Meanwhile, the hot spot's about two rows over, and the smoke was just pouring underneath all these broken cars. So, you know, you go over to the chief, hey, chief, you might want to look at this, and oh, okay, and and they're happy. It's, it's those moments that afterwards they say, thank you, guys, we really appreciate what you're doing, mm-hmm. but it's been a long time for the buy-in. I mean, we had our first flight over four years ago. And it's it's still a process for us to be able to help the way that we know it can happen. Yeah, even interpreting the thermal, well, especially interpreting the thermal, uh, it can require experience. You know, you look at a roof on a sunny day, and of course, it's all hot. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but you're looking for, you know, the hottest spot inside a wall where it shouldn't be or something like that. So, uh, you know, the the automation is going to take over more and more. 
And what I hear you saying is that you and your pilots are going to be focusing more on uh, being the experts of what the drone is telling you. Yeah, the data analysis end of it is going to become ours. Um, we have to own it. You know, we're the ones providing it. And it's and it's been interesting because in our department, it's the officers that carry the thermal imaging camera. They're the ones that go in and say, okay, this is our plan. And they're basing that plan off of something they can see. And they got to convey that information. Well, it's a little strange for our firefighters who are not used to being the ones holding a thermal imaging camera to say, hey, this is where we need to go. So it's it's taken some of them to step up to the plate. And it also has taken the officers that oversee them day in and day out to understand that, hey, these firefighters really do have something special that can contribute to the mission. Do you see part of your job as being internal PR, you know, going around and trying to teach the commanders about the technology? Uh, yes. And that is getting better. In fact, we had uh, recently about, I want to say it was 20 or 30 battalion chiefs got promoted and they go through a chief's development course and we are getting buy-in from the staff chiefs that maybe we should be able to go there. And we called them up and the chiefs were ecstatic. They're like, yes, get in there, teach these new battalion chiefs because they are going to be the future leadership of this department. Mm -hmm. So if we can get them fresh out of the two bars into the nice oak leaf, you know, we can get some buy-in and they were happy to have us there. And it's also good for our guys to build a rapport with how to interact with chiefs when it's not an overwhelming emergency. We're at the academy. It's a controlled burn. Everybody kind of knows their part. And to be able to say, where do we fit in here? Do you want us in front of you? Do you want us behind you? Do you want us to your side? Like it's a learning curve for everyone. So we've since uh, reached out to the training academy and anytime they're doing live burns, I want my guys there training. It's imperative that day in and day out, we are there training and training has been the biggest part of our mission. We try to fly every day, weather permitting. Do you, how do you deal with the issue that your guys, when they're flying, are the pilot in command. And they have, you know, the sole authority to the operation of that aircraft. And yet, they still have that history of the commander some, tells you to do something. How do they say no when it's not safe for them? Uh, they say no. <laughs> and that just comes down to it. It is the pilot's decision. It is his discretion. And when I tell you I had a firefighter tell the previous or two chiefs of departments ago when the program started, Chief Leonard, he wanted that drone up and it was just not safe. It was between two buildings in Manhattan. We had wind canyoning. We were unsure of the stability of the tethered system due to multi-pathing off of the buildings. It was just not a safe place to fly. And it was a rip-roaring fire. It was top floor blowing out like this is what we dreamed. Like if we're going to mm -hmm. provide aerial footage, this is it. And he had to tell the chief of department, no, he did not like that answer. But later on, afterwards, when all the tempers came down and everything settled, we had to explain to him, this is why. Like, we need to provide safety. And our original tethered drones, those were not small drones. I mean, they had one and 18-inch carbon fiber blades. It weighed, I don't even know how much that thing weighed. It was heavy. And it, it was a legitimate concern. If I can't knowingly put that up safe... It's not flying. And that really is coming down on my pilots and they have the power to make that decision. And I trust them wholeheartedly. So what is your approach to flying at an incident scene over people? I'm not talking about just you got the public and then you have, you know, department manpower. Uh, how do you handle that? 
Um, department manpower is considered part of our organization. So if we briefly have to go over them while they're wearing a helmet, if it's the only way, I don't like it. I'm not proud of it. But, you know, you make them aware and say, hey, look up. We're going to fly over you. But we fly typically over adjoining buildings. We don't fly over the street. We don't fly over pedestrian walkways. We try and find the best place that we can put it that it's not a problem. Safety first. Michael Shea. Love that guy. We we do. And we've had it happen. We had uh, a fire where the fire was progressing and the weather changed and you know, you start looking at each other like eh, this rain's getting a little heavy. And as we said, you know, maybe we should bring it back in. Lights out. It bricked. Water got in. It had a complete short out. Even the flight data showed that it was just it ended. It wasn't like something failed. It was complete failure. And it fell down on a rooftop. And we went back and I thank my pilots for doing things conscientiously. Um, the vendor may or may not have told us that, you know, it can fly in a little bit of rain. But what's a little bit of rain? Um but the, the decisions that we hammer, and I hate to use the word hammer into our pilots, but it, it is a beaten point. We do not fly over people. It is unacceptable and it will not happen. And for that reason alone, and it all started back on the tethered system that we had a 30 foot ring of danger because we didn't know where this thing was coming down and we had no control over it. We had up and down. There was no lateral movement. It was a, uh, it was a concern that if this thing decides that it's, yeah, if you've ever driven in a city and you're using the GPS on your phone and all of a sudden it thinks you're two blocks over, same thing's happening to a drone that's completely GPS dependent. So it, it was a scary feeling when something you have no control over is deciding it needs to be two blocks over. And, uh, it's, it, it was, it's been since day one that we do not fly over people. Yeah. And the nice thing about a tether drone is you know exactly how far of an area you need to clear. It's the, the radius of the tether. <laughs> um, I actually saw one of, it might be the, the flight you're describing, but I saw uh, some data on a flight where it was a row house fire and your guys took off and kind of hop skipped uh, over buildings in order to get the best position. And I honestly, I have to tell you, I smiled. I was so proud of you guys. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Flying safely. And, and you know, that also comes to the fact that we require a VO. There's no way we can fly in the city without a visual observer. And sometimes their job isn't necessarily to look at the drone, but to go clear a pathway for our pilot to get the drone where it needs to go. You know, so, and sometimes that even comes down to grabbing the NYPD cop directing traffic saying, I need you to leave your post for a second and clear this out. I need to move something. And they look at you like you have five heads and, and you explain to them, I'm moving a drone. I need people out. And they usually go, all right, this is better than directing traffic. And they'll come down and give us a hand. It's, it's just, it is unacceptable in the dense population of New York City to fly over people. Now you have a unique area that you operate in. I mean, not only is it the densest airspace and uh, very complicated, but it's almost, is it almost all urban? I mean, do you have any open area that you deal with? We have tons of open area. You get in uh, Staten Island, uh, Southern Queens, we got three, four acre brush fires going at a clip and, you know, nobody's putting up a tower ladder in a swamp because they don't want to get it stuck. So it takes us a little while to get there, but we will get up and give them, you know, 
aerial footage of where the head of the fire is going. There is plenty of woods in Queens. There's a, there's a park dead in the middle of Queens on the border of Brooklyn called Forest Park, and it is a forest. It is dense. You cannot see through most of the tree line. So we do come across that. Uh, so it's our guys are... I shouldn't say guys, our, my staff, because Angelica has been a wonderful addition to our unit. Um, we fly in the most varied spaces you can find. We're over water. We're over trees. We're in the canyons in Manhattan. We're over low rise, high rise, private dwellings. You name it, we fly it. I mean, we literally have anything and everything you can think of. So my vision for the future of the drones is not only are they going to become more, um, automated, have more artificial intelligence, be able to fly further and faster and stay longer over scenes. But I would really like to see more integration between manned and unmanned aircraft. I, I, I would love that too. (laughs) (laughs) Tell tell Uh, me about the hurdles that you see. Recently, uh, we had a fire up in the Bronx. Um, if anybody's ever flown into LaGuardia, they know that the the planes come in, they head north through Manhattan, then they hang a little right turn over the Bronx and then come down and I think it's runway, what is it? Oh, I'm blanking on which runway it is. <laughs> um, but the planes come in on that path. It is predetermined due to population, noise complaints. So we had a fire. So you have planes coming in on a descent to LaGuardia and the news helicopters want to come in and the tower told them that they got to stay below the, the approach pattern. So now I have my airspace up to maybe three, 400 feet. I have news helicopters trying to squeeze in over that. And then I have commercial airliners coming in over that. And, and you know, at that point, the SGI is filed. You know, most of our operations near airports have to go through the SGI due to zero grid and other concerns of uh, facility maps. Um, but the news helicopters are kind of a, a, a wild west. And then you throw in the NYPD, who's flying our battalion chief from Floyd Bennett Field out in Brooklyn. So I've got the police helicopter, the news helicopter. I have jet aviation and and my guys that are constantly scouring the sky. And to legally not be able to talk to them over, you know, the air band is incredibly frustrating because I, you know, I put a strobe on there, good for three nautical miles, and throw it up to, hey, this is great. So we had a helicopter, a news helicopter came in really low, and my guy, it was it was less than 400 feet, I'd swear, between the two of them. And it, my pilot looked at the officer work and says, I have to land. And the, and the officer is, what do you mean you have to land? I'm like, this is not safe. And he did. He brought it down. We called NYPD Aviation, and we reached out to the local... Uh, news helicopter FBO, which is over in New Jersey. And we said, we need them to to give us the room that we deserve. This is a, an active scene. We need this. So, you know, I wish I could get on the, a, a radio and say, you know, FD operations, please, you know, bring up your altitude or clear the airspace. But instead, I got to land my drone. I got to call a news desk who's going to call an FBO who might radio over the airband to the pilot that, you know, we're operating. So, uh, I wish, and and we are working on it. We've reached out to the news helicopters and we will have a meeting with them in the near future to discuss how things should play out. But it it really needs to have a better interaction between manned aviation and the unmanned uh, systems world. All right. What about the integration of you being able to talk to the NYPD helicopter pilots to get intelligence for a scene? Uh, 
I I would like that. Um, usually, when our chief gets into their helicopter and goes, uh, he has one of our radios. So I've tried reaching out, but we're operating on the same frequency as a, a multiple alarm fire. I've got you know a lot of decisions being made on the ground that need that same radio traffic. I'm not cutting in on that to tell a helicopter you know I need some more space. We land. Or at least we come down to, you know, an exclusion zone where we're between, you know, two buildings or lower than something else that's around. But uh, it's right. How about how can you work together with them where they're providing you with more of an overall picture and helping you on the ground? Uh, That is a good question. We have talked to them and we will interact with the chief up there and ask them to get us a view that we might not be able to get. And it is a bit of coordination. We're currently writing procedures up just for this. This is uncharted territory. So can we ask the communications office to use a separate you know, channel on our tactical radios to communicate with the chief? Do they want to eliminate the chief up with the NYPD? I don't know. These are not my decisions, but these are things that need to be hashed out. And it's, you know, I love the New York City Fire Department, but paperwork doesn't happen quickly. Um, so to make decisions, it's, you know, me reaching out to my captain, my captain reaching out to the, the chief of special operations, and he has to bring it to the table of, you know, the upper echelon of the department. And it's got to be agreed upon by everyone. So uh, I I would love it. We are friends with the cops. Um, the NYPD unit, Taru, uh, has been phenomenal. We have started very close in time to each other. We've come across a lot of the same hurdles, and we do. We feed off each other. I know you know everyone jokes around that there's you know tension between cops and firemen, but when it comes to the unmanned aviation world, we are wholeheartedly embraced in this together. We've both been to conferences down in Virginia. We've been all around, and we have a good rapport. And they also have a rapport with their manned aviation, which is located on the south end of Queens and Floyd Bennett Field. So we've used them, we've talked to them, we've become friendly with their air desk, and we now, that's part of our notifications. When we fly, we got to, you know, file a NOTAM or an SGI. We mm-hmm. got to call our operation center. We're calling NYPD Aviation, NYPD's operation center. Uh, when Trump uh, was living here, it was Secret Service was on our list of people to call. The, the list of people that we need to notify in this airspace is getting longer every day. Um, but... Those notifications need to be made. They're usually made in route since we're driving from the middle of Queens. And uh, to be able to have that conversation through Airband, I would love to see. Uh, but that's way above my pay grade. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, you've, you've heard me talk about it before. But uh, talking to the news helicopters using the Airband has been a game changer for us because those news helicopters once I, I mean it took a lot of work a lot of you know pr work to go sit down talk with them understand each other but uh honestly i get more out of them in telling me about the scene because they're already there yeah and i so before i became a new york city fireman i worked in television production and i worked for a local long island station which also covered parts of the city and that was my job i used to receive the microwave transmissions from the helicopter and i was you know in a tv studio like wow check this out and i always wanted when i worked there to be able to take that footage and disseminate it and it's something that they have brought up to us you know with the ad you know with bonded cellular and other ways of you know retransmitting data, not necessarily through microwave dishes anymore, uh, it is something that they are offering to us. But that's 
their footage. They own it. Can they just give it to us? Are we allowed to redisseminate that on our end through this incident command app? So you start getting into legal issues. And anytime lawyers get involved, things tend oh to slow down. And, yes. and it's not like we have one or two news stations. We have Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 7, Channel 11, Channel 12, uh, to name a few, that are flying over us at these events. And it's it's inundating. I mean, I, I don't know how they stay away from each other up there, to be honest with you. It's... I, I love it when I'm driving into work and you see like three or four of them up and you're like, oh, there must be an accident over the Long Island Expressway because they're all just sitting there, you know. But uh, to have their video, which I could see eventually becoming something we can get, but it's it's a process. Tell us about your observations and lessons that you learned from your experience on the Big Sur fire in California. You were watching the Cal Fire drone teams at work uh, what did that you walk was away cool from that? stuff, man? <laughs> uh, what did I want? All right. So I'm part of the incident management team. I'm, uh, I'm in the sit unit, which we deal with, uh, situational awareness. We're pulling in the data. We're the ones that order the NIROPS flights, or we reach out to the helicopters and the manned aviation world out there is it's the life's blood of Cal fire between water drops, Bambi buckets, you know, water dips, dropping off crews, equipment, the, the aviation space is restricted and for good reason. Um, but on the backside of that, the drone program does offer some abilities that manned aviation cannot do. You know, if you got to do a burn off on a steep terrain and they can't climb up there to get it and they got an M600 that's shooting off ping pong balls of fire in a perfectly straight line, Holy cow, that was just mind boggling that they could get in, draw, you know, a finger across the screen for a straight line and you're getting perfect burns. That's great. And then for mapping, you know, burned out areas, uh, I, so on the way from the airport to Big Sur, I drove past Walmart and I said, I wonder if they got a Mavic Mini. So I went over <laughs> and I bought a Mini and I drove down and everybody's like, what are you doing with this? I'm like, I know I'm not their drone guy and I was happened to be in the same tent with the air boss and we needed a facility map of this, the campsite that we were at for a safety plan. And, uh, you know, guys out there with the pen and paper trying to draw things up. And I looked at my GIS guys and I said, if I give you a 2d map, can you just overlay it and print it out? They're like, yeah, I'm like, hang on a minute. So I'd walk next door, <laughs> sat down with the air boss. I'm like, you doing any flights over here right now? He's like, I got one guy up. He should be landing in about 20 minutes. I'm like, can you give me a half hour of flight time? For what? I'm like, I got a little drone. I just want to try something. And he looked at me and just shook his head. He's like, you guys from New York. And he said, yes. So I went back over and took my drone out and I set it up and laid out a 2D grid and I flew it, imported it into GIS. And within a half hour, we had a safety plan for the whole site. And I brought it over to him and I said, thank you. And he looked at me, he's like, you did all that in that time? I'm like, yeah, that's what this stuff does. So it's, it's a culture difference that I will eventually see. And the, man, the manned aviation guys need to understand we're not coming for your job. We don't want to stop you. We want to help. And if we can help in ways that you can't do what you do, it's benefiting everyone. And the incident commanders are starting to see the value in it. Um, we actually used drones during a in-city mission where we had to track down uh, tractor trailers uh, around at all the hospitals in New York City at the height of COVID. And they use drones. We use drones and we were able to provide data of where these trailers were kept. And it was something that 
you know, as the incident management teams and the USAR teams and the all hazards, you know, countrywide, they, they are adopting it. And I mean, it's in the FEMA books that, you know, you have unmanned aerial systems on the wildland fires and it's for good reason. It's, it's here to stay. It's not going away. What do you see the future uh, as far as technology moving ahead? Do you see more artificial intelligence? Do you see the need for longer flight times? What's in your wish list? Uh, autonomy is, without a doubt, something that's coming. I mean, even the changes in the past four years, it's it's like going from an 8-track to a CD in a matter of, you know, no time. The, the autonomy is outstanding. The anti-collision is outstanding. Flight times, always going to be an issue. We always want more flight time. You know, when you got a stack of eight batteries so you can charge them and, you know, put them back in by the time you get to the next one, it's what we're doing. Um, for the longer flights, we still might go back to the tethered systems. Um, but the the power to weight ratio for these batteries, it's a fine line. At what point does it become too heavy to become worth putting that big of a battery into it? So I understand the restrictions. As technology gets better, things get lighter. We could see the longer flight times, but the autonomy, I really, uh, Skydio is just putting out a phenomenal product right now. I mean, uh, they brought it out. They showed it to us. I was running through the trees. It just followed me like it was a walk in the park, and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. I mean, it just doesn't exist, and now it does. Uh, it's one of my best pilots, he uh, actually flies for the Drone Racing League. And he was the guy that, like, if we needed to thread a needle, that's who I wanted on the sticks. Like, Chris, you got it. You're the guy. Mm -hmm. Go get him. And now I can push my finger on a screen and the drone just gets to where it needs to go without batting an eye. Is uh, it's, it's really, truly unbelievable what's happened in the past few years. And I can't wait to see where it's going to go from there. So in closing... Because we're going to have more podcasts. I, I've got <laughs> so many questions I never got to. But in closing this one, all pilots, drone pilots, man pilots, we've all learned aviation lessons the hard way, unfortunately. Can you share some situations you've had or observed that were teachable moments for your pilots? Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. A teachable moment for me is that moment where you land the drone and you say to yourself in your head, I am not doing that again. <laughs> we had recently uh, somebody took off and they didn't quite have the right amount of satellites and it altered the return to home and it decided it was going to come home, but it was not coming back to where it started from. And it's now a procedure that when we take off, you will hover for 30 seconds to a minute until that return to home is updated or you have enough satellites. It was a teachable moment. Something may not have landed so nicely because it hit some tree branches on the way back. And it's, it's a problem. And it's these things that, yes, it is teachable, but these books that we're writing to lay out our program are all coming from experiences. You know, if our guys weren't having these, oh, no moments, I will never do that again, I wouldn't have something to write about. And I, as much as I love writing about things, the, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that we're learning from it. And I just want to make sure that the new guys coming in are learning from other people's mistakes without having to, to fill them out themselves, because there's no need to make the same mistake twice. So that brings up a final question. The final, final question, which is, <laughs> is it 
Is it, from your point of view, is it better to be in the air fast or safe? Uh, safe, hands down every time. And I equate it to what I learned when I got on the fire department. Haste makes waste. You will never see a New York City firefighter with their hands full of tools running into a burning building. We don't run. We take our time. We're analyzing. We're sizing up. We're making sure that everything is where it should be and that we're going to get our job done without causing more trouble. So the, the, to be fast, is it's useless. And we're going on a second alarm. This fire is not going out right away. We're not going to be blasting into the sky just because. We're there to get information to those who need it. And if we're not getting there safely and we can't get there at all, it's pointless. I hands down, take the breath, take a look, make sure your VO is ready, make sure your battery's charged, do the checklists, checklist, 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 checklist. They're there for a reason. They work. You know, you look at any movie where a plane's go, coming out of the sky and the first thing the pilot does is pull out a checklist and the, uh, you know, co-pilot's reading it off. Good, 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 good. Yeah. It's there to make your brain go through that process. And I can't my my guys make fun of me because i make a qr code for just about every checklist so that way they can just point their phone at it and get it and uh, i think they might start calling me qr but uh i i have checklists for everything and it's for a reason you need to be conscientious of what it is that you're doing well it's interesting because so i was you know all day in the airplane yesterday and doing the same sorts of things and every time pulling out the checklist we're reading off the checklist you know, it might be the thousandth time that we've done this, but you can't miss something if you're reading it off the checklist. Yeah. And, and it's, they work, they work well. And you know what, if something's not there, we can add it or change it. Or if technology makes something more streamlined, we'll adapt. But that checklist is there for a reason. You have been awesome. You've shared great information with us. I hope Give so. Give us some good insight. <laughs> Uh, any last words that you want to impart before we, we end? Make friends. This is a small community, and thank God for social media. I, I mean, I can't say enough things. When we first started with our Tether program, I remember Tim Herlocker came to me and said, oh, there's this guy out of Carolinas. He wants to start up a, a website called psflight.org. And, and – it was a friendship. We made it almost four years ago, Steve, and we've yeah. leaned off of each other for random things. And it's a small community. I, I've met so many people just in the tri-state area, whether it's you know Port Authority, NYPD, MTA, Department of Buildings is looking for us for help. I mean, it's it's a small community, and we're all at the same game of benefiting the public in the best way that we can, and to be expeditious while being safe uh, is it's immeasurable. So so make friends, do the reach outs, join the clubs, become part of the chat groups. There is a wealth of information, and we can all learn from each other's mistakes. So I, I make friends. I, I can't say it enough. We all need to be in this together. Thank you so much, Fred. Cheers. Hi, this is Steve Rode, your friendly chief pilot here at the Public Safety Flight website. Be sure to visit psflight.org to get in on my private email list, read all the latest posts, or ask me all of your public safety drone questions. That's psflight.org, or if that trips you up, you can land in the right place by using publicsafetyflight.org.